0: Uh, Please open in your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. I want us to begin by reading our passage for today, which is for the second week in a row, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. Before we read that, let me just remind you in this passage, Jesus teaches three different parables, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. Last week, we took a look at the parable of the weeds. This week, we're going to look at the other two parables, the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Let's begin by reading this entire section together. Once again, that's Matthew thirteen twenty-four to 43. Matthew says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what was uh, what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We live in an incredibly impatient culture. I think you can see it all around you. The signs of it are everywhere. Practically everything in our society is geared to deliver what we want in the shortest amount of time possible. You run to the grocery store and the shelves are filled with foods that can be prepared with as with little effort and in the shortest amount of time possible there's instant oatmeal and instant coffee and instant soup there are box dinners that you can cook in less than 15 minutes there tv dinners frozen vegetables snacks that you can heat with the microwave in a matter of seconds you go to checkout and there are express lanes so you don't have to wait in line behind people that are making large purchases. Or there are even self-checkout stations that basically keep keep you from having to wait in line at all. You're on your way out of the store and maybe on your way out you decide to stop by the Redbox machine to pick up a movie that to watch later that night. That's such a convenience, right? There's no need to drive across town to the movie store. You don't have to sort through some endless supply of movies and stand in line to rent it. All you have to do is just stop by Redbox. And in three minutes, you can select the movie you want and check out and go home. There's a problem, though, right? There's a line of people with the Redbox machine. Never mind, right? You don't have to wait in line for that. You don't need Redbox. You can just pick something to watch online instead. You can leave without your movie. You jump in the car, and, and if you're living in a big enough city, you might even jump onto the expressway on your way home. No need to wait in traffic. While you're driving, your spouse decides they want to contact you, and so they send you a text message. The phone dings or buzzes or vibrates, and instantly you have what they wanted to say to you. You don't have to wait until you get home to talk. They don't even have to call you. They just text you and tell you what they wanted to say. But in broken English, of course, because it takes too long to write full sentences. The text says, stop by B of A, need dollar sign. That means stop by Bank of America on the way home and pick up cash. Now, that's kind of weird in and of itself. That's an odd request. After all, who demands cash anymore, right? It's much faster to use the credit card reader. All it takes is a swipe, and boom, the transaction is done. Well, unfortunately, some people do still use cash. So you stop by the bank on the way home, grab some cash for your spouse. But that's no big hassle either, right? Because you don't even have to get out of the car. You just drive up to the ATM have your cash in hand in under a minute. Don't even have to talk to anyone. You come home and flip on the TV while you're putting your groceries away. You decide to turn on the cable news station that broadcasts news 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Again, how great is that, right? You can get the news anytime you want without having to wait. After you put the groceries away, you jump online to check social media where you get instant updates from your family and friends about what's going on in their day. And if you're on a platform like Twitter, you even get those updates in 140 characters or less. No need for details, right? You don't need to know everything that's going on in their life. Just get the gist of it from as many of your your friends as you can in as little time as possible so that you're informed about their, their lives and move on to the next thing. And we could go on, right? You guys get the picture, don't you? We live in an incredibly impatient culture. Waiting is hard. It's hard to have to wait for the things you want. And if there's any people that should understand this point, it's us. So how do you do it? How do you wait for the things you want? Last week I said that if you're thinking rightly, if you're thinking scripturally, then you should be impatient for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. That's what you really should be longing for. That's what you should be anxious about. What you should be looking forward to there's a day coming when the lord jesus will return and when he returns he is going to remove all causes of sin and lawbreakers we read last week that should be an exciting thought to consider right a world in which there is no sin or evil to destroy or corrupt our enjoyment of god You should long for the day when the sin that clouds your vision of the glory of God is removed. You should long for the day when the beauty of God is fully manifested over the entire earth, when you get to sit and dwell with him in unbroken fellowship, soaking in the full blessing of his presence with uninterrupted joy. It's a glorious future that you have in front of you, Christian. And you should be incredibly eager for it to arrive right now. The problem is that it may take a while. In case you haven't noticed, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And it hasn't come yet. And that's not unexpected. Jesus predicted this would happen. We saw this in the parable of the weeds last week. When you get into that parable, what you see is that it, it explains that the coming of the kingdom of heaven... And the judgment of that kingdom in particular, the destruction of the wicked and the establishment of righteousness, Jesus said that that would be a slow affair. The common expectation in Israel at this time was that once the Messiah had arrived, judgment would come soon thereafter. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus corrected this expectation. He revealed to His disciples that this was not true. He told them that the wicked would not be judged immediately after His arrival. Instead, there would be an extended period of time before judgment came during which the wicked would be allowed to grow, to live, side by side along with the righteous. That's what the parable of the weeds explained. That was the secret of the kingdom that it explained. And through this, it revealed that the kingdom of God would not be immediate. So the kingdom of heaven may be amazing and it may be something that you should be excited for, but it may be a while before it comes, meaning you're going to have to wait. So how are you supposed to do that? How are you going to manage to wait so long for such a tremendous blessing? Let's assume for a moment that you are thinking scripturally and that your greatest desire is to see Jesus come back and reign over the earth. How are you going to manage to be patient and wait for that to happen given what Jesus is saying about how it's going to take a while before He comes and does this? That's the question that I want to try to answer for you this morning, and I'm going to do it with the parable of the mustard seed in 11, in Matthew 13, verses 31 to 35. So once again, our passage for today... Matthew thirteen, twenty four to forty three. We looked at most of this last week when we examined the parable of the weeds. Today we're going to close out our study of these verses by looking at verses thirty one to thirty five, which includes the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And the question that I'm going to try to answer for you from these parables is How do we muster up the patience to wait for the coming of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is going to show us in these parables. He's going to show us why we need to wait. Before we really jump into these parables, let's read that section of this passage one more time. Matthew 13, 31 to 35. Matthew says this. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown... It is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. We're currently in this section of Matthew where Jesus is disclosing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Which is to say that Jesus is revealing truths about the kingdom that are intended only for insiders. These are for those in the know, so to speak. These are kingdom truths that are meant for those who have responded positively to keep Jesus' kingdom message and belong to his kingdom. And Jesus is disclosing these secrets in the the form of parables. That's what we see back in Matthew thirteen, ten to 11. There the disciples come to Jesus asking him why he speaks to the crowd in parables. And Jesus answers them. He says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So that's what's going on here. In chapter 13, Jesus is describing truths about the kingdom of heaven, but he's not intending to reveal these truths to everyone. These are kingdom secrets, and he's telling these secrets in the form of parables. A parable, if you aren't familiar, is a kind of story. It's an an analogy that illustrates or explains some particular truth. However, the purpose of these parables here in chapter 13 is not to reveal truth, but actually to hide it. They're intended to reveal truth, but to reveal it only to those to whom Jesus wants to receive it. Thus, there's a selective kind of teaching taking place here in the form of these parables. Up to this point, Jesus has taught the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, both of which explain different aspects to the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the sower, there is the sower who goes out and casts seed on all different types of ground with varying degrees of success. This parable we saw explained why some people were responsive to Jesus' kingdom message and why some weren't. The parable of the weeds is about a farmer whose field is sabotaged by an enemy who sows this dangerous weed into his wheat in an attempt to destroy his crops. This parable explains the slowness of the kingdom. It revealed that the judgment that everyone expected to happen immediately wouldn't happen immediately. Because there's going to be this intermediary period before the establishment of God's kingdom where the sons of the devil would be allowed to grow side by side along with the sons of the kingdom. So both parables teach something about the kingdom. One teaches about those who respond to the message of the kingdom. It teaches about those who will and those who will not enter the kingdom. The other parable explains the timing of the kingdom. Now we come to the third and fourth parables presented in this chapter, the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. When you take a look at these parables, it would appear at first glance that these parables reveal the slow but growing movement of, of the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus explains, uh, he speaks of this tiny mustard seed growing into this gigantic plant, even going so far as to actually call it a tree. It becomes a plant so large that even the birds can come and make a nest in its branches. The mustard seed becomes that big, that strong. The plant can support that kind of weight, even though it comes from this proverbially tiny seed. The mustard seed would have been the tiniest of all known seeds in ancient Palestine, and yet it grew into this massive plant, sometimes 9 or even 12 or even 15 feet tall. It was a plant that became so big that, in fact, according to one commentator, it was often said not to even plant it in a garden because it took up so much space. So it would seem that the parable becomes this picture of how the kingdom will begin with humble origins before it eventually grow up and going on to become this massive enterprise. That's a story describing the growth of the kingdom of heaven. If that's the case, then just like we saw with the parable of the weeds, then there's this idea that the kingdom is going to be a gradual affair. It won't be something that just kind of, you know, boom, explodes up overnight. There's going to be a growth period. It's going to start small and expand, but before it's all said and done, it's going to be this massive plant. In fact, it'll even become the biggest of all the plants in the garden. Likewise, the parable of the leaven seems to hit on the slow and steady growth of the kingdom. When you take a piece of leavened dough and and place it in a batch of unleavened bread, the leaven eventually spreads to the entire batch. The leaven permeates the entire batch of unleavened bread, and so the whole batch becomes leaven. Here, Jesus speaks of a woman hiding a bit of leaven in three measures of flour. That's equivalent to about 50 pounds of flour, which is a lot of dough. Well, this little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump of dough. So again, you have this idea where something small goes on to grow into something big. Now, it might be tempting at first to think that these two parables are therefore just repeating the same principle, that they're both speaking of this growth of something small into something big. However, if you pan out and take a broader look, At the meaning of the elements of these parables, you can see that they're actually talking about very similar and yet very different ideas. For example, if you look at the parable of the mustard seed, you see once again that there's this reference to the birds of the air taking shelter in the branches of this mustard plant. That's not just a reference to the size and the strength of this plant. That's a reference to a very specific image mentioned a few different times in the Old Testament. Probably the most well-known example of this image occurs in Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he brings to Daniel. And in this dream, a tree of great, great height grows in the midst of the earth, and its top reaches into the heavens, and it becomes visible across the entire earth. And in the words of Daniel, its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was fruit for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, And all flesh was fed from it. Nebuchadnezzar asks his wise man for an interpretation of this dream. And only Daniel, Daniel is able to provide it. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the tree. He says, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Thus, this tree image represents Nebuchadnezzar. And the dominion that he enjoys over the earth. The beasts of the field that find shade under it, the birds of the heavens living in his branches, these represent those nations that have come under the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. They are the nations that are even protected by and fed by Babylon. That's the meaning of this image when we see it appear in Daniel 4. The tree and the birds represent this great and expansive kingdom, a kingdom so large that even other nations come and find shelter under its branches. And this isn't the only time this imagery is used. Ezekiel uses the same imagery in Ezekiel 31. Only this time it's a reference to the kingdom that preceded Babylon, the empire of Assyria. God says reference with, to, with reference to Assyria in Ezekiel 31, verses 3 to 6. He says, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds, waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it tired, t- towered high above all the trees of the field, its bows grew and its branches long from, uh, uh, its bows uh, grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. And then he says, "All the birds of the heaven made their nests in its bows." All its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. Under its shadow lived all great nations. So once again, we have this picture of the tree with, this, with the birds nesting in its branches. This is a picture of an expansive kingdom so large that other nations come and live under it. However, as it relates to our verse today, probably the most significant use of this imagery occurs just a few chapters earlier in Ezekiel. If you'd actually go ahead and turn there, Ezekiel 17. Turn to Ezekiel 17 for a moment, verse 22. Again, that's Ezekiel 17, verse 22. In Ezekiel 17, God gives a parable, a riddle, to Ezekiel in which an eagle comes to Lebanon. And this eagle rips off the top of a cedar and it carries it away into a land of trade and prosperity. He also takes seed from the land of Lebanon and spreads it throughout his land where it prospers and becomes a low-spreading vine. However, before long, there's another eagle. And the vine turns to this second eagle instead of the first. And while it's still rooted in the land of the first eagle, it reaches out its branches to the second one. It even bends its roots towards the second eagle, even though it's found protection and prosperity under the first eagle. Ezekiel goes on to explain that the first eagle represents Babylon, and the second one represents Egypt. The top of the cedar represents the Davidic king, Jehoiachin, who is was deport, de, deported to Babylon after the Babylonians first captured Jerusalem. The seed represents Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, who Nebuchadnezzar set in place to serve as king over Israel instead of Jehoiachin. The vine stretching out to the second eagle represents this time when Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon and sent ambassadors to Egypt requesting Pharaoh's help. God goes on to rebuke Zedekiah for his attempts to rebel against Babylon. He says that he too will be dragged in a net to Babylon where he'll, he'll be judged for his sin. But then God says this in verses 22 to 24. Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shades of its branches birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree dry up the green tree and make dry and make the dry tree flourish I am the Lord I have spoken and I will do it I wonder can you guys get a sense of what God is referring to there in that passage can you see what he's starting to reference there The top of the cedar is the Davidic line. And God says He's going to take just a sprig from the very top of this treetop and He's going to plant it in Israel where it will become this great and magnificent kingdom. Can you guys see this? This is what Isaiah referred to as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is the Messiah, the Davidic king, who would establish a kingdom that would span across the entire earth. That's what this passage in Ezekiel is talking about. So flash forward to our verse where Jesus talks about a mustard seed that grows into a tree. And keep in mind, this isn't just a mustard plant. It's a tree, he calls it. He goes out of his way to call it a tree, even though it's a plant. And what do you think he's referring to here? He's talking about this global kingdom that's going to be established under his reign. The kingdom is going to start small, like this mustard seed, but before it's all said and done, it's going to be this expansive kingdom, a kingdom so large that other nations will come and even nest in its branches. So if we're trying to understand the meaning of the mustard seed, it's not just about the slow and steady growth of the kingdom. Rather, it's about the coming size of the kingdom. This is going to be a a kingdom of tremendous size. It starts small, but in the end, its borders are going to stretch out across the entire earth. The leaven, likewise, has a very unique and specific meaning. It may be tempting to assume that the leaven here is a reference to evil spreading throughout the body of Christ. And some leaven is sometimes referred to in New Testament passages that speak about the spreading of evil. For example, in Luke 12, Jesus warns the disciples. He says, quote, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Likewise, in two different instances, in 1 Corinthians 5 6 and in Galatians 5 9, Paul instructs his readers about the dangers of associating with evil and sinful men, saying, quote, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The idea in all three passages is that if a person is not careful, then The uh, corruption of others will spread to them like leaven in a lump of dough. Passages like these can lead us to think that this is what Jesus is saying with with this parable. He's warning his disciples that evil will eventually pervade and corrupt the church. That's the small thing expanding out into the big. A little bit of evil will eventually corrupt the entire body of Christ. The implication being, of course, that the disciples need to be watchful. They need to guard themselves against this corrupting influence. But if you notice here, Jesus says, and hopefully you're back in Matthew 13 here, if you notice here, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven, not the lump of dough. And Jesus doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven is like a lump of dough that a woman took and hid a small measure of leaven in. No, he says it's like the leaven that is inside the dough. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is the one doing the so-called corrupting, in this passage it's spreading throughout the dough leaven isn't a symbol of evil in this parable it's a symbol of the influencing effect of the kingdom it's a picture of how the kingdom will expand and grow in fact if you stop to think about it this is how leaven is used in all of the new testament passages that refer to it in every single instance leaven is used with reference to the fact that it spreads it grows When Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees, he's warning the disciples not just about their hypocrisy, but about the fact that their hypocrisy spreads. It's passed on to others. The same thing can be said with reference to Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians and Galatians as well. So the reason Jesus brings up this idea of leaven is not because leaven is inherently a picture of evil. Rather, it's because leaven is a picture of this pervasive spreading influence. The truth is that culturally leaven was often seen as a good thing in ancient Israel. For example, John MacArthur notes this. He says, when a Jewish girl was married, her mother would give a small piece of leavened dough from a batch baked just before the wedding. From that gift of leaven, the the bride would bake bread for her own household throughout her married life. That gift, simple as it was, was among the, was among the most cherished that the bride received because it represented the love and blessedness of the household in which she grew up and that would be carried on into the household she was about to establish. According to MacArthur, one rabbi uh, even once wrote, Great is peace, and that peace is to the earth as leaven is to the dough. So leaven isn't necessarily bad. That's not why people would bring up the picture of leaven to speak of something evil. Rather, it is brought up to speak of something that spreads. Leaven symbolizes influence. In this parable, it represents the eventual pervasive influence of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom isn't going to start with this overwhelming power. It's going to start small. In fact, like the leaven in this parable, you may not even see it when it first begins. It's practically invisible. And yet, though the actual existence of this kingdom may be hard to pin down, though it doesn't have An incredibly visible presence, its effects will be felt if it's given enough time. So these parables really aren't talking about the same thing. Yes, they're both talking about the idea that the kingdom is going to experience this slow and steady movement from insignificance to significance, that it's going to grow from something small into something big, but they're not repeating each other. They're actually talking about kingdom growth from a different perspective. The parable of the mustard seed speaks of the expansiveness of the kingdom. It will be a kingdom whose domain eventually incorporates all the nations of the earth. The parable of the leaven, though, speaks of the growing influence of the kingdom. It's a kingdom that will permeate and spread its influence, its culture, so to speak, throughout the entire earth. That's what it would seem these parables are teaching at first glance. And if we were to stop right there, I think there would be enough for us to chew on for a while. Again, we're living in an incredibly impatient culture, and what these parables teach us is that we as disciples need to have patience for the kingdom of heaven. It's very easy for us to allow the impatience of our culture to bleed into our own thinking. Really, if we're being honest with ourselves, then we can probably admit that it probably already has, right? It's infiltrated the church. It affects the way we think about the kingdom of God. Ours is a microwave Christianity that expects instant results. We expect churches to constantly double their membership, for instance, or their failures. We expect someone to accept Christ right there on the spot. They need to walk the aisle pray the prayer right then and there, or else we're not evangelizing effectively. Even in our own sanctification, we expect instant results. We, we pray to God to help us with some sin, and then if it doesn't happen right away, we start to wonder if maybe we prayed the right way. We start to wonder if maybe God didn't hear us, or maybe we misunderstood what we should be asking for. These parables can remind us that we should probably adjust our expectations. They tell us, for instance, that we're not going to win the world for Christ in a generation. And yet we can know that if we're only patient, then the kingdom will advance, that it will continue to grow and prosper. These parables can do that. They can call us to take our eyes off of the results and simply focus on being faithful. They can call us to stop thinking that just because something doesn't work right away doesn't mean it's broken. They can call us to be patient. These parables can also give us confidence as we seek to advance the kingdom through the evangelization of the lost. Jesus told us that we would be rejected, that rejection should even be expected on our mission, that rejection would even come to characterize our mission. And this can be a disheartening thing to experience, to share the gospel and be told no thank you over and over again. That can be really discouraging. It can even make you want to just quit sharing Christ altogether these parables can remind you that there are always reasons to keep at it, to keep pressing on in the work of the Great Commission, because while the results may not be inevitable or or, or be immediate, uh, the results are inevitable. There will be results. You may share the gospel a hundred times before anyone expresses any interest, but someone will eventually express interest, and the kingdom will advance. In fact, you may even share the gospel with someone a hundred times before they express a desire to respond to it. But understand that through that process, you're sowing seeds that may eventually bear fruit. When you share the gospel with them for the first time, the kingdom may grow slowly. But it will continue to grow. So just persevere. Keep going. The fruit will eventually come. The parables can teach us that. And if we accept these parables at face value, I think they can also give us hope. Last week, I explained that we should look forward to a world that is dominated by righteousness, but that can be hard to do, right? I mean, after all, when we look around, I don't know about you, but when I look around, I see evil proliferating across the earth. And when when we see that, we can get easily discouraged and wonder, is Jesus ever going to act? Is evil ever, I mean, is it possible that, that evil is going to win the day? Well, these parables remind us that the answer to those questions are, yes, Jesus will act and no evil will not win the day. They remind us that as bad as things look right now, they can improve and they will improve. And that gives us hope in the present darkness. These parables can do all of these things and all of these things are true. These parables do speak of the expanding domain and the influence of the kingdom of heaven. And they do teach us to be both patient and confident in our efforts to advance the kingdom of heaven. And they show us that we can have hope in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. We can look forward to the coming redemption of this fallen world, even when it looks like evil will win. But there's something else going on here as well. Something that I think greatly enriches the significance of these parables. I have to tell you, it was something that I never noticed until I started to study these parables. And it comes from this explanatory statement that Matthew adds in verses 34 to 35. Look there and let's read that statement one more time. Matthew says, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. I have to tell you, to be completely honest, these parables have always presented a little bit of a problem for me. I don't know about you, but they have for me. And the reason is because the lesson they teach seems to go so contrary both to our experience and to so many passages that we find in the Scriptures. After all, they can make it seem as if the kingdom is going to grow and spread and gradually come to dominate the earth. And and on one hand, I mean, I guess we can see that happening. After all, Jesus started with just 12 committed disciples, and it certainly exploded beyond that, right? Culturally speaking, Christianity went from being this isolated, heretical Jewish sect to the dominant world religion. Supposedly some 2.2 billion people of the approximately 7 billion people on this planet identify as Christians. That's almost a third of the world's population, and it makes Christianity the largest religion in the world today. It's a faith that certainly spans the globe. So you can perhaps see how the parable of the mustard seed has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled. And its influence extends even beyond that. Right? Christianity helped to transform Western Europe from a land of largely populated by unenlightened barbarians into a continent that tends to lead the world in things like education and human rights. Even though many in the world reject Christ, no one can deny that those nations that have been touched by Christianity have seen their nations influenced for the better. So perhaps you can see how the parable of the leaven is being fulfilled in the world as well. Christianity has tended to have a positive influence on the culture that it comes in contact with, even in with those outside the church. But I have to ask you guys, does it really seem like there's just this inevitable, steady march towards victory going on? I mean, if you were to look around you right now, would you say on the whole that the church is growing? Would you say that it's this expanding mustard seed? Can you even say that it's having a leavening effect on our culture, let alone the entire world? So there are supposedly 2.2 billion people on this planet that identify as Christians. Do you think that that number is anywhere close to accurately reflecting the number of truly regenerate people walking this earth? How many do you think there really are of that number? Would you say maybe 10% of that number? Maybe 25% of those who claim Christ? Let's be gracious. Let's say we took half that figure and say that even 50% of the people claiming to be Christian are truly born again. That's about 1 billion believers, or about 14% of the world's population. In 2,000 years. Don't get me wrong, 14% of the world's population is nothing to scoff at, I mean, to go from 12 followers to a billion, that's incredibly remarkable growth. But can you really say that the kingdom of heaven is permeating the entire earth? Can you really say that the kingdom of heaven is dominating the earth when, at least by my estimation, by extremely generous estimates, I think, only about 3 out of 20 people believe? What do you do with this? And even more than that, how do you reconcile these parables with passages that clearly indicate that Christianity, at least in the present age, will not dominate the earth. I think of statements that Jesus has made earlier in this very gospel, as he's preparing to send his disciples on a mission in chapter 10. He actually tells them that they're going to be hated by the world. And really, the picture he paints in that chapter is one mostly of persecution. Back in chapter Five, he even goes so far as to say that persecution is a sign of godliness, that it's a mark of genuine righteousness. So it doesn't seem that Jesus was expecting this hugely popular response to his message. In fact, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to salvation, and there are few who find it. But the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter into it. How do you reconcile passages like that with this parable? Even in the parable that we studied last week, the parable of the weeds, it's clear that there's going to be an abundance of unbelievers right up until the very end of the age, right? How do you reconcile that kind of data and and these kinds of scriptural statements with the message communicated here in these parables? And to be completely honest with you, I didn't really know the answer to that question until I started digging into these parables. But then I began to look into this statement that Matthew makes in verses 34 and 35, and they started to make a lot more sense. Let me show you why that is. And Just, is. I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're starting to run a little short on time here, and there's a lot to say, so I'm going to make this explanation as brief as I possibly can. And if for some reason you're not tracking with me here, you can maybe ask me to clarify after the service. I'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. That being said, take a look at this here in verses 34 and 35. Matthew says that Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. In fact, he wouldn't say anything to them at all without a parable. And this fulfilled what was written by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So you read that and you go, okay, that's interesting. I wonder where it says that. Where does it predict that the Messiah would speak in parables? And this takes you back to Psalm 78, 2, where you discover that this psalm did not actually predict that the Messiah would speak in parables. In Psalm 78, the psalmist, in this case, in this case, Asaph begins. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that have, uh, we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So the psalmist here says he's going to speak in a parable. He's going to tell the people of what God has done, past tense, by the way. And if you read the rest of the psalm, you find out this is exactly what he does. Over the next 68 verses, the psalmist goes on to retell the deeds of God. To be more specific, he gives a brief history of Israel. And through this history, he recalls how God was gracious to Israel in spite of their rebellion. That's the parable. That's the dark sayings of old, the things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. So the psalm didn't actually predict that the Messiah would speak in parables. It was the parable that it spoke of. And this isn't a really big deal. Matthew frequently uses this word, fulfill, not in a predictive sense, but in the sense of comparison. This word for fulfill, play ra'o it means simply to fill up or complete. And Matthew regularly uses it in this gospel to indicate that Jesus fills up or completes some Old Testament concept. And pretty consistently, he means it to indicate that there's a precedent for the things that Jesus is saying and doing. Jesus, of course, said and did a lot of unexpected things, and Matthew's basically saying, but if you remember, this is just like the time when, and he gives an Old Testament example to demonstrate that although what Jesus was doing was unexpected, he wasn't doing anything new. There was a precedent established for the things Jesus did and said in his ministry. People just tended to overlook those passages. And that's what he's doing here in the quotation of this psalm. Matthew is saying that when Jesus spoke in parables, it was like what Asaph did in Psalm 78. So you look at Psalm 78, and then you say, how is what Jesus doing here in Matthew 13, and in this section, Matthew 13, 24 to 43 in particular, how is this like what Asaph did in Psalm 78? And that's actually kind of tricky. Because Asaph doesn't speak in a parable in the same way that Jesus does in Matthew 13. At least it doesn't seem that way at first. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives these illustrations that are hard to understand without any interpretation. They're cryptic sayings that are hard to decipher. That's not what Asaph does. Asaph says he will speak in a parable. He will utter, quote, dark sayings of old, things that, quote, our fathers have uh, uh, told us. And then he goes on to say that he will speak these things that have been heard and known. And he gives a history of Israel. And so far from hiding these truths, he actually says that he will not hide them, quote, uh, from, from, quote, their children, but tell them among the coming generation. That's strange. If the parable is not cryptic, if it's not meant to hide a truth, then how is it still a parable? And how is it like what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 13? Well, the answer comes from the meaning of this word parable, which is a bit hard to define because a parable is a story, but it's a, it's a symbolic story with a hidden meaning. And in fact, another word that you could use for it, one that would be very close in meaning, is the word riddle. A parable is a bit like a riddle. And in Psalm 78, this is what the psalmist says he will speak. That word for dark sayings that Matthew translates as what has been hidden in Matthew 13, that word in Hebrew means basically riddle point is the psalmist is uttering a story that's perplexing he's uttering a story that's hard to grasp and if we're reading it in light of the psalm then we have to understand that it's not the elements of the psalmist's story that are hard to decipher after all he's very plain in retelling his history of israel rather it's the meaning of this story that's perplexing that's what's hard to grasp So you read the psalm and you hear of God's dealings with Israel and you ask yourself, what's so hard to grasp about all of this? And there's only one answer to that question. And it's the mercy of God. That's what's perplexing about the psalmist story. Israel rebelled continually and still God was merciful to them. So this story is easy to interpret, but to understand the truth behind it, that's very difficult. There's the mystery. How is God merciful to Israel in spite of all of their rebellion? How do you explain that sort of grace? And you can't really. It is, in a sense, without logic. It doesn't make sense. That's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 78. So then, what does this tell us about Jesus' parables? it helps us understand that not all of them were necessarily difficult to interpret but even when they were easy to interpret they were still hard to understand or accept they explained truths that were perplexing they taught things that even when they were understood were still hard to accept In other words, Jesus isn't saying things in a confusing way. He's saying things that in and of themselves are confusing and hard to accept. Like when Jesus tells the people in John 6, you guys have heard of this before, right? He says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people go, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's what he's doing here as well. He's making statements that are hard to accept in order to harden those who've rejected the truth while at the same time disclosing additional truth to those who are willing to accept it. Now, when you pan back out again and look at the disciples' reaction to the parable and the mustard seed and the leaven, I think you'll notice that they don't seem to have any question about the interpretation of the parable. You guys see that? In verse 36 they'll ask Jesus to explain the meaning of the parable of the weeds, but not the parable of the mustard seed in the leaven. So it would seem that these two parables are not difficult parables to interpret. Someone with a very basic understanding of the Old Testament could quickly understand the meaning, the basic meaning of these parables. And what this means is that these parables must have explained truths That were hard for outsiders to accept. For Matthew to follow up these two parables specifically with this quotation about how these parables fulfilled Psalm 78. It would seem to indicate that there's something like that happening here too. This parable is easy enough to interpret, but what they have to say? That was apparently very hard for Jesus' listeners to accept. So what was so hard to accept about these parables? Think about it for a minute and consider that these two parables are grouped with the parable of the weeds in verses 24 to 30. Consider as well that the psalmist what the psalmist had to say in Psalm 78 and how the principles revealed in that psalm might play out here as well. Think once again what did Jesus say was going to happen in the parable of the weeds? He said that judgment was going to be delayed, right? That it wasn't going to take place right away. Now, what does Jesus say about the kingdom of heaven in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven? Or, maybe to give you a hint here, who is the kingdom of heaven going to affect according to these parables? The birds of the air taking refuge in the branches of the mustard plant, who are they? Who do these birds represent? Again, we've seen it's the nations, right? The leaven is going to spread into the whole lump. What's that a reference to? Where is this leaven spreading? It's going out into the entire world, right? In other words, the picture we have in these parables is not of the Messiah destroying the nations. It's of him including them in his kingdom. They're nesting in the branches of his kingdom. They aren't being destroyed by him. They're being transformed by him. So then who's going to benefit from the slow and steady advancement of the kingdom of heaven? Or to put it another way, who's going to receive the benefit of the delay in the Messiah's judgment? It's going to be the nations, right? It's going to be the Gentiles. You know, those those unclean sinners. They're going to receive the benefit of this. And can you begin to see how what Jesus is saying here, even when it was clearly understood, would have been very hard for the self-righteous Israelite, for the very type of Israelite who rejected Jesus' message. Can you see how it would have been very hard for them to accept? In verses 24 to 30, Jesus explains that judgment's going to be delayed. And then in verses 31 to 35, he explains the result of this delay in judgment. And that result is the salvation of Gentiles. The entire world is going to benefit from the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand, guys? In these parables, Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to fill up and saturate the entire earth as if the whole world is going to be converted or something like that. What he is saying, though, is that all peoples will benefit from this kingdom. It's like what we read in the, the call to worship today, right? It's what it was promised to Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The kingdom of heaven is going to start small, but it's in the end it's going to be a global enterprise. Listen, that would have been an incredibly hard saying for the self-righteous Jew who thought himself better than the Gentile and who eagerly awaited the Gentile's destruction. As in Psalm 78, it's the mercy of God that confounds the listener. It makes Jesus hard to accept, even when it's understood. But to those who've seen their need for God's mercy and responded to it, to those who have ears to hear, these parables aren't confounding, they're clarifying. Jesus isn't acting. He isn't entering into judgment with the world according to the timetable they expected. And why not? It's because the kingdom of heaven is designed to extend mercy to all nations. That couldn't have happened if Jesus entered into judgment right away. The gospel hadn't yet gone out to the nations. So if Jesus judges the earth immediately, they would have all been destroyed. But in making this delay, their salvation becomes possible. A self-righteous Israelite couldn't accept that fact. But a guy like Matthew Levi could. The poor in spirit, they can understand this. So these parables actually answered questions for the unrighteous, but for the self-righteous, it only made Jesus' message more perplexing. It only made his message harder to accept. So at the beginning of today's message, I asked this question. How do we wait for the coming of the kingdom of heaven? And suppose we do have a zeal for God's righteousness. Suppose we have a holy longing to see the glory of God manifested and exalted across the entire world. How then do we still manage to find the strength to wait? The answer is right here. It's in the mercy of God. We learn to wait by being merciful. It's by being merciful. I want you guys to understand something. My job as a preacher is to see you formed into the image of Christ. And what that means is that I must exhort you to think like Christ, to take on His way of thinking. And so when we come to passages like the parable of the weeds, which promise the removal of all sin and lawlessness, I have to urge you to be zealous for righteousness, because that's the character of God. So yes, there is a sense in which you should eagerly await the coming destruction of evil, because that's what God longs for, and so you should as well. Well, here's the other side of that coin. If you're going to be like God, then you must not only have a zeal for righteousness, but you must also be merciful. The picture that we have in Scripture, it's as if the bow of God's wrath is constantly stretched back and ready at any moment to be unleashed upon the wicked. And it's only by an incredible feat of power that he keeps that bow cocked back and doesn't let it go. So then, what is that power? What keeps him from releasing that arrow and letting the full force of his fury fly? Well, it's his mercy. His mercy is what makes that possible. God's merciful grace to the sinner is the only thing that restrains him. See, there's a sort of tension in God between his desire for justice on the one hand and his desire to extend grace on the other. Both of those qualities exist in God. And so, if you're going to be like him If you're going to be like Christ, then there must be a mixture of these qualities in you as well. So should you long for the destruction of evil? Yes, absolutely. But you should also long to see grace extended to the wicked as well. It's a both and. You must learn to hate evil and yet love the sinner. And if you can learn to think like that, to view the world through this sort of paradigm with these two characteristics in mind, both justice and grace, not just the one or the other, but both of them together, then it is then that you'll begin to think about sin and evil in the same way that God does. And it is then that I dare say that you will also begin to truly comprehend the beauty and also the mysterious and awe-inspiring majesty of God. Listen, guys, our God is not a simple God. He is himself a kind of parable, an enigma. There's a wisdom and knowledge in God that is simply too wonderful for us, too high for us to understand. But if you can get these two ideas down and start to live them out, then you'll not only glorify God, but you'll also worship Let's pray that God will help us to grasp this tension between His justice and His mercy in our own hearts so that we might glorify Him through our worship. Let's pray.